0: Preach the word, in season. Preach the word, out of season. Preach the word, with great patience and instruction. Preach with patience. Preach with patience and instruction. The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online. At www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Well, hello again. Um, it's truly a privilege and an honor to to be with you today. Um, thank you for that uh, uh, leading us in worship and song. I uh, love those songs and love to to hear you all singing. Uh, with joy and thanksgiving to the Lord, uh, to our Savior who, is, who has bought us um, by his blood. Um, I want to thank uh, Pastor George and the leadership here for the, the opportunity to come uh, proclaim the Word of God to you. Um, it, it's truly a privilege. Let me say a quick word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into God's Word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to, to worship you together, to gather as a, as a body of believers, Lord, for my wife and I as, as visitors, but uh, we feel like uh, we too are part of this, this family um, and thankful for uh, the love, the fellowship, and the joy that we see on these faces. Um, <clears throat> Lord, thank you that we can come together and worship you and that we can hear from you and hear from your word, and I pray that we would do that now. In Christ's name, amen. You know, in our turbulent world, it seems that nothing is certain, nothing is fixed. Uh, we reach out our hands to secure ourselves on something that we think is going to be stable, and as soon as we do that, it moves and we, we almost fall to the ground. That's how things feel these days. Where can we find something reliable? Where's the solid rock? On which we can stand. I live in the Middle East, a region that is not known for its stability, to say the least. Um, last year, in the, in the country where I lived, uh, which I won't name, but I'll give you enough clues, <laughs> you can figure it out, maybe. We experienced a major disastrous accident in the, the capital city. We've spent months at a time with no official government. The currency, uh, the local currency, has lost 90% of its value. And COVID-19 has taken a significant toll on health, on the medical system, and on people's livelihoods. You know, living in that environment, uh, my family and I have grown accustomed to to chaos. Everything comes and goes. Uh, Today, there's a gas shortage. Tomorrow, there may be limited bread. But the Word of God tells us that it is fixed and reliable. We can trust it and depend on it. Let's read and listen to the word of the Lord together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Christ says, "'Do not think that I came to abolish the law "'or the prophets. "'I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. "'For truly I say to you, "'until heaven and earth pass away, "'not the smallest letter or stroke,' shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. These words come from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, immediately following the temptation of Christ and his baptism. This is recorded for us at the beginning of his ministry. And in Jesus' introduction to this most famous sermon in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 5 we find the beatitudes blessed are and jesus lists several blessings upon people who are part of his kingdom jesus taught that those who disregard worldly privileges in this life will be rewarded with heavenly privileges in the next life in the following section in verses 13 to 16 jesus taught how citizens of the kingdom ought to live in this present evil world. Christ's disciples are intended to be agents of good, for good in the world. They are to be salt and light, and they must cause others to glorify God by their visible righteousness. In our text for today, Matthew 5 17 to 20, we see one main truth God's word must be accomplished. It's that simple. God's Word must be accomplished. Each of the four verses in this text teaches us one aspect of the accomplishing of Scripture. We see four characters and their relationship to the Word of God. We see Christ, we see God, we see the believer, and we see the unbeliever. Our Lord teaches us four principles that we must understand about the Word of God, that Christ Fulfills God's word. Two, God accomplishes his word. Three, believers must obey God's word. And four, unbelievers must satisfy God's word. The first principle we must understand from this text is that Christ fulfills God's word. Verse 17 says again, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This is, of course, Christ speaking here. And he talks about not abolishing the law or the prophets. What does he mean? What is he referring to? The phrase God's word is not used in this paragraph or Bible or Scripture or any of the words that we would usually use. So let's try to understand what we're talking about. Jesus uses three names. He says the law and the prophets in verse 17 He says the law in verse 18 and commandments, referring to individual commandments of the law in verse 19. And then in verse 20, Jesus doesn't mention the scripture directly, but it's related to these other verses as we'll see. The law and the prophets was a common way to refer to the whole Old Testament. Sometimes they would say the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. We know the law refers to The first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses that God gave to the people through Moses from the mountain, right? God spoke these words directly to Moses and through him to the people. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these are the foundation of the Old Testament. And the prophets or the prophets and the writings were those books that were added to The revelation of God, further revelation that God had given to his people. And that's what was available during the time of Christ. That is the Bible that they had. But of course, Jesus' apostles and their associates would be also inspired by the Holy Spirit to write more books that would be added to the Old Testament. So we have 66 books of the Bible, one perfect word of God that is complete. So Jesus is here referring to the Old Testament, what they had at the time, but uh, we also understand these these great descriptions of God's Word apply to the New Testament as well. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish. This word abolish uh, is interesting. We could also translate it as destroy. It's used of completely destroying something, leveling it. Uh, In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus predicted that every stone of the temple would be torn down. That's the same word. So apparently there were those who thought Jesus was attempting to completely eliminate the Old Testament and start fresh, just wipe the slate clean and, and start with new revelation from God. Jesus did bring new revelation, but he wants to tell them, I did not come to throw out the old. I came to establish it. Jesus says, do not think. That's important. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, people already thought and his his enemies were ready to accuse him of being opposed to Moses, opposed to the law, opposed to the earlier revelation of God. Well, why might they have thought this? I think there's a couple of reasons that they may have been tempted to think that Jesus was opposed to the Old Testament. One is Jesus opposed the Pharisees and the scribes, didn't he? Yeah, he made that very clear. These people were thought to be the experts of the law. So they thought, if Jesus is opposing the teachers of the law, he must be opposed to the law that they are teaching. You know, we think of the the scribes and Pharisees as bad guys because of everything that Jesus ever said about them. But they were actually revered and respected by the people and upheld. And so the people were confused. Why is Jesus so opposed to these men who are teachers of the law? If he opposes them, he must be opposed to the Old Testament. Well, another reason they may have thought that Christ opposed the law was because he challenged the contemporary understandings of the law. He challenged what the people understood about the law. You know, if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 5, you see how Christ repeatedly corrected bad common interpretations of the law. The Pharisees in particular, they focused on external purity. Jesus said, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but you pay no attention to the inside. So they had this external uh, only obedience. But the Old Testament itself doesn't even allow for that, but speaks to the heart. So Jesus said, you're in error here. Jesus brought the true interpretation. He corrected their misunderstandings, and therefore they thought, oh, he must be opposing the law itself. And the last reason they may have thought that Christ was canceling the law was that he spoke with his own authority. They thought Christ was opposed to the law because he spoke new revelation from God. At the end of this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, it says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This isn't the kind of sermon they were used to hearing, where someone says, But I say to you, So they were confused. Jesus was a different kind of teacher. He was saying, you have heard, but I say to you. But he was really just correcting what they had gotten wrong about the word of God. Christ was not dependent on the law because he's the master of the law. Christ wanted to assure his listeners that he was not speaking contrary to the law. In fact, he was supporting the law. He was in favor of the law. More than that, he completed the law of God. Without Christ, we might even say the law of God was missing something. It needed completion. It needed fulfillment. Christ came to fulfill the word of God. What does it mean that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets? The word fulfill simply means to fill up or to complete. It's not a, a complicated word. But it's often used in the context of prophecy. You imagine if God says he's going to do something... You need the fulfillment of that. You need the completion of that. If I promise uh, my son, tomorrow I'm going to take you out and we're going to buy some ice cream, that, that word, that promise is kind of hanging in the air, and my son is waiting for what? The fulfillment, right? The completion of that, that promise. And so it is with God. When he speaks a prophecy or a promise, there is this debt that is unpaid, but God always settles his debts, right? He always does what he says he is going to do. And so it was necessary for Christ to come to fulfill the word of God that was spoken. In 2018, conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro, a practicing Jew, interviewed Pastor John MacArthur. And it was a great interview. You can find it online. In the interview, they talked about the Old Testament, and Pastor MacArthur explained the gospel as revealed in Isaiah 53. From from the book of the Jews, right from the Old Testament, he explained the gospel of Jesus. And Shapiro, who is a brilliant and, and respectful interviewer, nevertheless, of course, could not accept the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. And so he made a comment that I thought was so fascinating uh, and so insightful. He said, "Well, the Jews and Christians we disagree on the ending of the book. Is that true?" Do we believe mostly the same things and we just disagree on the ending of the book? No. Because of their rejection of Christ, the Jews have had to develop a fundamentally different understanding of what we would call the Old Testament. Without Christ, the Old Testament history, prophecy, and law are incomplete. I don't know if you've ever read through the Old Testament. You read through it, the history, you get to the end. It's not a great ending. It's not an exciting ending. It needs something, right? It needs the coming of the Savior, of the Messiah. So these things are incomplete without Christ. Christ is not optional. He's not the dessert, take it or leave it. Christ is the steak dinner, right? The Old Testament is the appetizer. It points us forward to what Christ will bring. But Christ didn't come to reject that. He came to be the capstone, to be the fulfillment of the Word of God. There are several aspects to Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. First, Christ fulfills many prophecies from the Old Testament, doesn't he? Like hundreds of them. In fact, he's the center and main character of biblical prophecy. He's the promised Messiah, the anointed one who would come. Another facet of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament is that Christ perfectly and righteously obeyed the law. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation. You know that, right? The law was never meant to be a way by which people could be saved. Not because the law was broken or deficient. It's perfect. It comes from God. It reflects his character. What was the problem with the law? The problem was with the people. They couldn't keep it. They couldn't obey the word of God. And so they were stuck in their sins. But Christ, one man, Christ Jesus, kept the law perfectly on our behalf. The third facet of Christ's fulfillment of the law is that Christ showed the true interpretation of the law, as we mentioned. Um, As I mentioned, you you look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says um, about murder and hate, adultery and lust. You have heard, but I tell you. You have heard, but I say to you. He gives us the true interpretation. Christ helps us understand the scriptures by his teaching. Christ is the perfect teacher, and through his life and teaching, he brings us the full revelation of God the Father. Through his fulfilling of prophecy, through his life of obedience, and through his teaching, Jesus shows us what God's word means. The second principle we must understand about the word of God is closely related to the first one. We saw that Christ fulfills God's word. Now we must consider what it means that God accomplishes his word. I'll read again verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now God is not mentioned in this verse by name, but he's clearly the acting party. Uh, At the end of this verse, we have a a passive verb. Until all is accomplished, all of the scripture is, Everything that is written in the law will be accomplished. So we have to ask, well, who's doing this? The law doesn't accomplish itself. God's word doesn't fulfill itself. It is God. And we often see this in Scripture when we have a passive verb, that it is God who is acting to fulfill what he has said. Jesus is giving an example here. Jesus loves to give us pictures, right? Right? We, we can understand the, the word of God better when we have pictures. Jesus gives us a picture. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, no part of the law will pass away. So you have heaven and earth. And in the Bible, when the term heaven and earth are used together, it means the entire creation. It's not one part and another part. He's talking about the whole thing together. What did God create in the beginning, according to Genesis 1-1? The heavens and the earth. We're talking about the entire physical creation with nothing left out. In the Bible, it was common to use two opposite points, like in this case heaven and earth, to communicate the idea of the whole of something. So if they were talking about Old Testament Land of Israel, they would talk about the most northern city and the most southern city, from Dan to Beersheba, meaning the whole land of Israel. Uh, In the United States, we might say from sea to shining sea, right? We're not talking about the sea, we're talking about the land in between these United States. So the phrase heaven and earth means the entire physical creation. And that's great because Jesus is saying the word of God is more fixed, more reliable than everything physical that we see around us. You know, Christ could have compared the word of God to a single aspect of this world, a stone, a tree, or or a mountain, something that's fixed and unmoving. In the country where I live, there are trees that are literally thousands of years old, and these are sturdy trees. They've lasted for a long time, and they're going to be around still for a long time. But Jesus goes beyond this to say the word of God is more fixed and secure than everything you've ever known and experienced, everything that you can see that exists in the physical world, whether it be on the earth or in the skies, everything that you see. The word of God is more solid, more reliable, more dependable than everything around us. What does it mean that the word of God will not pass away? Well, I think we could talk about God's promises, covenants, prophecies, the things that God has said he will do, he will do. That's part of what it means that the word of God will not pass away. I think we could also include the truth about God and this world that is contained in Scripture. God has told us who he is and who we are, and those things are not going to change. God has told us the truth, and we can rely on it. I think we can also include the eternal commands and principles of God's word that are based on God's unchanging attributes. Things like love for God and for neighbor, truthfulness and justice. These things are founded in who God is, and so they're not going to change. It's not like tomorrow we're going to wake up and God saying, okay, now you have to live a completely different way than I told you yesterday. No, these things are reliable because God has told us them. We know that they are true. And that they're not going to be amended later. Jesus says that the smallest letter or stroke will not pass away. In the old King James it would say, "The jot and tittle would not pass from the word of God." In Greek, Matthew chapter five verse 18 says, uh, Iota or Yoda not talking about Yoda from "Star Wars, if you're any Star Wars fans here, but Yoda, the Greek letter. Um, And it was the smallest letter in the alphabet. It was like our lowercase i, but without even the dot on top. Just a little bitty line. And, And the Hebrew letter that was related to that one was the yod. And it was also the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So we were talking about something very small. And then the stroke that Jesus refers to is a tiny portion of a letter. But one that might distinguish one letter from another. Just a little bitty mark. So... I've learned from studying Arabic that one dot can make a big difference in meaning. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote out the story of creation, and I was working on it, fortunately, um, because of what was about to happen, just one-on-one with my teacher, not in front of a big crowd. Um, <clears throat> and I was very proud of myself. I'd written out the story of creation in Arabic, and I was going to read it and retell it to my, to my teacher. Um, but I, I got a little, I made a little mistake. Instead of, um, using the word chalak, I used the word halak. And you might even not be able to hear the difference between that, but these two words are very similar. They sound almost the same, and the only difference between the two words is the first one has a dot on top of the first letter, and the second one doesn't. Other than that, they look exactly the same. So I got them confused. So I should have said chalak, which means he created, but instead I said halak, which means he shaved. And so I went through the whole story of creation and God shaved the heavens and the earth and, and he shaved the fish and the birds and even the creeping things. So uh, the whole world got a haircut that day. Uh, as I like to say, Jesus shaves. So, <laughs> But but in all seriousness, Christ is telling us that the word of God will not be altered or corrupted. We can trust it. There are no, no mistakes made. Uh, we can rely on the word of God that we hold in our hands. And more than that, Christ is assuring us that everything God has said in his word that he will do, he will do. No part of the scripture will pass away. Nothing will turn out to be false. No promise will fail to be fulfilled no command will be canceled. But wait, you say, what about those Old Testament commands that God did cancel? You know, we don't sacrifice lambs today. I'm thankful that we don't have to do that in church. We don't have to to sacrifice an animal um, or keep the same uh, dietary laws that they had or, or worship in a temple But it's not that God created something, a law, and then said, oh, this needs to be changed. It's wrong. Let's shift and go in a different direction. This was a command that was intended from the beginning to be temporary, to point forward to Christ. These commands, this sacrificial system was fulfilled in Christ, right? Our Passover lamb. It didn't become obsolete or broken. It was intended from the beginning to serve a purpose. You know, from time to time, governments make amendments to their constitutions. We've done this in the United States through the years because there was something that was wrong. There was something that needed to be changed, something that needed to be improved, but not so with God's Word. It doesn't need any amendments. It is perfect and unchanging. God's Word reflects God Himself. Why is God's Word fixed and unchanging? Because God is fixed and unchanging. God's Word is true. Why? Because God is true. God's Word is a perfect reflection of His character, just like a mirror reflects your face. When we look into the Word of God, we see our God and what He is like. The commands of Scripture show us God's righteousness. The stories of Scripture show us God's grace, don't they? God's grace to Abraham and Moses and David to his people. The poetry of scripture shows us God's beauty and glory. God's word does not change because God does not change. What he has said he will do, he will do. And you know, it is easy to affirm, or I hope that it is easy for you to affirm the reliability of God's word in the abstract. But the test comes when we are faced with situations where it seems God and his word have failed us. You know, I'm thankful when I see all of you in this room gathering together to worship the Lord. Uh, I know that the Lord is blessing this ministry, and I'm sure that you are excited and encouraged by that. But it's not always that way in ministry, is it? There's ups and there's downs, there's highs and there's lows. You know, it, it's, it's easier to affirm the effectiveness of God's Word when ministry is successful. People are coming to faith and growing in Christ. But is our confidence in God's Word only present when God's Word is obviously prospering and doing its work. You know, I have to confess that my faith in the efficacy of God's Word has been tested. The, the, the training ministry that we're doing, we're encouraged. Things are going well, um, and things are going well in our local church as well, the ministry that we do there. But I lead the young adult ministry, and there have been times when, you know, we're a small group, and I thought, I'm going to be the only one. I'm going to be the only one that shows up today. I'm going to be preaching this message to myself. Uh, And the Lord has always encouraged me. I've never been by myself. They always come. But do I trust in God when I don't see the fruit, when I don't see it working? Do I have the faith to believe that God's word will be accomplished because God has said it? You know, we can look in our lives and see how do we respond to trials Do we doubt God's character and his promises when we are facing difficulties in our lives? That's the true test. Can we trust that God's word is reliable when we don't see it with our eyes? God accomplishes his word. But what about man? You know, as God's creatures, we are designed to accomplish the will of God on the earth. So the third principle we learn from this passage about the Word of God is that believers must obey God's Word. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches us who is the greatest and who is the least in the kingdom. You know, as believers, we should want to know the answer to this question, not out of the spirit of competition or pride or I want to be the best, I want to be the first. Because Jesus did say, whoever wants to be the first needs to be the last, right? Whoever wants to be the greatest needs to be the least. But, you know, if you learn a new sport or if you learn a new game or, or event or activity, you know, what are the first couple things you want to learn? You want to know what are the rules? How do I, how do I play? What can I do and not do, and how do I win, right? How do I succeed in this activity? What does it take to achieve uh, a good success in this event? And it should be the same, in fact, much more in our lives as believers. We should want to know how to be successful, how to be great in the kingdom of heaven, not to stroke our pride, but to please our Lord and to honor him. And Jesus says, who is the greatest and who is the least? It all comes down to one thing. What is your view of Scripture? God will honor those who honor his word. Jesus uses the word annul, and this word is related to, but slightly different from the word that was used in verse 17 that's translated, at least in the translation I'm using, the New American Standard, as abolish. Okay, this word annul is often used of untying or or loosening the strap of one's sandal. That's why the English Standard Version, the ESV says whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. That's a a pretty good literal uh, translation that helps us understand the, the literal meaning of this word, to loosen something. But Jesus is just talking here about breaking a commandment, about failing to obey, failing to do what God has asked us to do. So he's not talking about destroying the law, but disobedience and failing to obey what God has said. So we're talking about Believers here, right? The greatest and the least, but these are people who are in the kingdom. Can someone completely reject God's word and enter Christ's kingdom? No, clearly not. We cannot reject Christ and his word and expect to be welcomed at his table. But can someone break some commands of the law and enter Christ's kingdom? I sure hope so. Because you and and I have all broken God's law. We need the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We break God's law. Even after believing in Christ, we continue to commit acts of disobedience. None of us can keep God's word perfectly. And yet, Christ commands us to obey the law, not to earn our salvation, but in order to please our God. It's not that You know, well, we can't keep it perfectly, so we won't even try. No, Christ demands that we obey his word because God hates sin. Do you believe that? God hates sin. He hates sin so much that he sent Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that we could be forgiven, but also to eventually eliminate sin from his creation. In the kingdom of God, there will be no sin. That's why it says the one who breaks God's law and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. He will enter the kingdom, but he will lose some reward from his heavenly father. There are those that, that say, no there's, no, there's no difference in reward among citizens of Christ's kingdom. But I believe verses like this and, and many others in Scripture teaches that there are rewards given to those who are faithful, who by God's grace obey and follow the word of God more and more. Certainly no one's going to be deprived in the kingdom of Christ. No one's going to be sad or, or mistreated. We're going to be there with our Lord. We're all going to be joyful in the presence of our Lord. But there is greater reward and blessing for those who exhibit greater obedience and faithfulness on the earth. And these rewards that are promised to us in Scripture should be one of our motivations for obedience. You know, I'm not more holy if I say, God, I don't want any of your rewards. You know, if you you offer your children a gift for their birthday and they say, oh, no thanks, I don't want that. Is that honoring to you as a parent? No, you want them to accept it and to be, to be glad to see the smile on their face and for them to be thankful for what they have received. And in the same way, when God holds out blessing, uh, he, he intends that to be a motivation to our obedience, to say God cares so much about us following his word that he is going to reward that. I should strive more and more to, to obey God. Because it's not easy. We suffer persecution, we face trials, but we know that something greater is coming and the Lord will reward all of the sacrifices that are made for him. We shouldn't seek rewards selfishly or greedily or from a spirit of competition, but neither should we re- refuse the generous offer of reward and blessing. You know, Jesus says, this is one who teaches others to do the same. It's not just about how we live. It's about the influence that we have on other people, positively or negatively. You know, Christ is mentioning that this one will teach others to do the same. You remember James chapter three, verse one? It says, everybody should be a teacher. No, it says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. To stand in a pulpit such as this, And proclaim God's word is is a big responsibility. And it's one that that I don't take lightly. I'm fearful when I stand here and declare to you, God's word says this. God's word means that. You must obey him in this way. This is a scary position to be in. Those who teach must be careful to only say what God has said. How terrible it is, and this happens all the time. The teachers lead people astray. They lead people farther from God rather than toward him. We must be careful every time we open our mouths and say, thus says the Lord, whether we're standing in the pulpit or we're in the church lobby or out on the lawn or we're sitting around our dinner tables talking about the things of God. We must be careful about how we communicate God's word to others. Well, how do we lead others astray? What happens There's a few ways that we can do this. Of course, we can do it with our words. We can say things that are untrue about God. Or we might convince others that they don't have to strive for holiness because, oh, you're saved by grace, so you can just live however you want. Or, like the Pharisees, we might convince others to obey our own invented extra-biblical commands. Say, you need to do this, this, and this. Oh, it's not in Scripture, but yes, but you need to do it. We can lead others astray. Well, what's the problem with adding rules to Scripture, right? It's just, you know, let's do more. No, when we, when we add our own commandments to what God has given, we tend to neglect the weightier provisions of the law, right? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. So we need to be careful. We can also lead others astray by our poor example, by our own lives, we can cause others to stray from the Lord. You know, someone may look at our lives and say, you know, they see a mother. Oh, she gets, she gets angry at her children all the time, so I guess it's not a big deal. I can do that too. We're always influencing other people. Let it be a positive influence. You know, God is displeased when we neglect his commandments, right? But he, the reverse is also true. When we obey God is pleased. When we encourage others to obey the, God of, uh, the, the, the word of God, God is pleased by this. He loves that. Those who honor God's word and obey it are considered the greatest in the kingdom. The, you know, the greatest in the kingdom is not the pastor of the biggest church or, or the person who memorized the most Bible verses or the one who knows the most theology. The greatest in the kingdom is the person who listens to God and does what he says. And the thing about that that is so encouraging to me is that's within reach of any of us. We have the word of God. We can live it. We can obey it from the youngest to the oldest of us. Any circumstance in life, anyone can strive to be the greatest in the kingdom of God by being faithful to obey what God has said. You know, I don't think I have to to tell you this, but obedience is not a popular concept in our world today. Respect for authority is not a popular concept. You know, many are rejecting authority in virtually all of its forms. Government, police, parents. You know, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Uh, that, that's our mentality. You know, as human beings, we don't like to be told what to do. And I'm from Texas. We especially don't like to be told <laughs> what to do, right? But we, we live up to that reputation. Um. But authority is so essential. Of course, the authority of God and his word, but even the legitimate human authority, it's never perfect, but the legitimate human authority that God has established. You know, we need to have respect for for authority because God has taught us to do that. And we need to teach our kids that. You know, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. We need to teach our children to obey their parents not just for the sake of the parents, but so that they one day may know how to properly relate to, obey, respect, and honor their Lord. Years ago, my wife and I were foster parents, and, and it was really just a joy and a privilege to be able to be you know, temporary parents to uh, two young boys, uh, one a baby and the other one, uh, named Nathan, he came to us as a, as a toddler. He was about a year and a half, and he lived with us till he was almost two, uh, about six months. And we taught him a new word, primarily Kathleen, uh, a new word that I don't think he'd ever heard before, and that was the word obey. <laughs> and uh, when he got in trouble, he would just repeat that word over and over, obey. Obey, obey. One time we were, uh, he he actually uh, slept in in a crib in in the room with us, and uh, we heard him. I I think he was asleep in the crib. Obey, (laughs) obey, (laughs) obey. So I told my wife, I I don't know if we fixed him or we broke him, but we changed this kid's life. Um, We taught him something new. And, and, And I hope that that will have a positive impact on his life. Many people in this world need to learn there is a God and he needs to be obeyed and he has established authority in our lives, primarily the word of God that tells us how we are to live. We need to remember that we're slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 to 18 say, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, You became slaves of righteousness. We don't belong to ourselves. We're not free to live however we please. We are free to live according to God's pleasure. We must present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So that's how it is with believers. Believers must obey God's word. But What about the last category? What about those who don't know Christ? What should be their response to God's revelation? Are they off the hook? No, we learn that unbelievers must satisfy God's word. Christ says to his audience, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Believers are responsible to obey the word of God. But what about unbelievers? You know, verse 20 is fascinating, and I think it's a little tricky. I read that verse and... Uh, The first time I read it, I, I don't know what's the connection to these previous verses. What is Christ talking about here? We need to dig in a little deeper. You know, in verse 19, Jesus talks about those who enter the kingdom of God, right? From the greatest to the least, these are people who are in the kingdom. But now he's telling us in verse 20, if a person's righteousness did not surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he will not enter the kingdom of God at all. So we need to know. What is this criteria that Jesus is referring to? This righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We have mentioned them already in the sermon, but we need to think about who the scribes and Pharisees are. You know, to understand what Christ is saying, we need to understand how the people of that time viewed these two groups. As we said, the, the scribes and Pharisees were highly respected. They were loved. They were appreciated as the religious leaders. The Jews didn't view them as bad. They thought that they were the most righteous people. They thought that they would enter the kingdom first. The Pharisees appeared to have a great relationship with the law. They appeared to be righteous people. And they particularly prided themselves on their careful keeping of the Mosaic law. They invented many more laws in order to help them keep God's law. For example, they knew exactly how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath and still be considered resting. One more than that, and you're breaking the law. They gave tithes from their spice cabinet, you know, the the mint and dill and, and cumin. They were so precise in obeying these external regulations. If entering the kingdom of heaven meant being more fastidious than the scribes and Pharisees, how could anyone enter the kingdom of heaven? You, you can't out-Pharisee the Pharisees, all right? Just ask Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, I was a good monk. You know, he was a monk before he became a reformer of the church. I was a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. You can't compete with that. I can't compete with that. None of us have driven our bodies to the brink of existence through through prayers and fasting. You know, if we try to compete with that, we're just going to find that you have become like one who is unclean, and all your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You will wither like a leaf and your iniquities like the wind will take you away. Instead, Jesus wants you to understand that you need a different kind of righteousness. Jesus Christ himself is the only human to ever keep the law of God completely, right? He fulfilled the word of God. He possesses perfect righteousness and he offers it freely to each one of us. You must come to him in humility and repentance, asking for his forgiveness and his free gift of salvation. And you will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be justified in the sight of God, the holy judge. But you must receive this free gift. If you hold on to your attempts to keep God's law and try to please him on your own, you will never receive this free gift of salvation. God says you must relinquish all of that. It's not by works of righteousness, but by God's grace and mercy that we are saved. Do you think God will save you simply because you attended church or read your Bible or your parents are believers? That's not the criteria. You cannot earn your salvation. Only Christ can give it to you. But once his spirit lives inside of you, you will want nothing more than to know and keep his word. You will treasure every word, every letter, every dot, and you will have confidence that God will accomplish his word. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Every word of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, will be accomplished. Our response should be to value and obey the word of our God. But we cannot do this Unless we have first received the righteousness of Christ, which surpasses all human works and attempts to please God by keeping the law. I pray that this will be true for each one of us hearing this message today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and that you have sent us the living word, your Son, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, and gives us his life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that today would be their day, that they would repent of their sins and believe in the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to live for you today, to submit ourselves to your most holy word. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.